Amen. So where is God? It's one of the oldest questions in the human experience. Where is God? In the times of the hurricane and the earthquake and pestilence and pandemics and even just seasons of doubt and depression. Where is God? In these kinds of times, unbelievers have the tendency to ask, where is this allegedly good God if he exists at all? Believers who ordinarily love and trust, worship this God, begin to believe that perhaps he was asleep at the wheel. Well, we have the profound advantage of having the completion of God's inspired word. And that word gives us all different kinds of literary styles to tell us that God is always active, that God is always good, that he is always precisely where he is supposed to be. Now, last week, we began walking through our sermon series in the book of Esther. And as we looked at chapters 1 and 2, our big idea for last week was that God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. This morning, thanks be to God, we're going to continue to walk through this marvelous little narrative. We're going to look at chapters, uh, most of chapter 2 and uh, some of chapter 3, and we're going to see our big idea for this morning, and it goes like this. God's activity does not depend on our awareness. God's activity does not depend on our awareness. God is always doing something, whether or not we recognize it. Now, just to set the stage for what we're going to talk about this morning, I need to do a little bit of historical backdrop just to remind you that the nation of Israel has been split in half. The monarchy has been divided. The Assyrians took off the northern 10 tribes, and the Babylonians have come in beginning in 605 BC, and in three successive exiles, they carried off the best and the brightest of Israel and carried them off to Babylon. But then the Babylonian Empire fell, and the Persians have come in. The Persians had this enormous empire under King Darius, and his son, Ahasuerus, is also called Xerxes, is now in power when we come to the book of Esther. And remember that Esther is not her Hebrew name. That's Hadassah, which means myrtle. Her name in the book of Esther is Esther, which is a takeoff in the Persian language of the deity Ishtar, the star goddess. So her and her cousin Mordecai are in the Persian empire and they're not supposed to be there. Again, I wanna emphasize one of the interpretive clues for the book of Esther is that they are not supposed to be there. Zechariah 2 has made it completely clear. The prophet has pronounced, those who remain, come out of there. Return to the land that God has promised you. There remained an enormous amount of adversity and animosity and enmity between the people of Israel who were in the Persian empire and the inhabitants of the Persian Empire. And that persists, as I'm sure you well know, even to this day in what is modern-day Iran. You can't make this kind of stuff up, but literally just two days ago, on Friday of this past week, some extremists in Iran tried to set fire to the tomb of Mordecai and Esther. So there's still an enormous amount of animosity that persists even to this day. Well, I want to remind you, as we look through the book of Esther, that one of the clues is that Esther and Mordecai were not supposed to have been there. Over a million Jewish people were in the Persian Empire at the time that God says to return, but only 50,000 or so actually came out. Now, again, 
We do not know who actually wrote the book of Esther, but we're fairly certain that it was written by somebody in Israel to the people of Israel who, upon their return from exile, had rebuilt the temple and had begun to worship there, but were already practicing covenant disobedience to their God. And so the writer of Esther is using that narrative to remind them, even though you're not being faithful, God is faithful. Please return to covenant faithfulness. That's a really important clue. And so how does this little book of Esther fit into our overarching canon of scripture? Well, again, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 gives us a clue. Genesis 3, 15 God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And from that moment on, early on in the book of Genesis, the enemy, our adversary, the devil, has made every attempt to destroy the people of God in multiple ways at multiple times. But God is faithful. He has promised to preserve for himself a people, even though there have been some really, really dark events, even though some of God's people haven't been aware of his presence and his activity. Again, our idea for this morning, God's activity does not depend on our awareness. So I just want to remind you, graphically, with a map of the Persian Empire, just how massive this place actually was. The capital of the Persian Empire, Susa, is some 900 miles to the east of Jerusalem. It's very far from home, but some of these Jewish people have begun to put down roots and to make themselves quite at home, and they did not want to return. So we have people like Mordecai that we're going to spend a little bit more time learning about today. We're going to hear about Mordecai's situation and what he encounters, what he does, and how in the sovereignty of God, Esther is where she's supposed to be for such a time as this. Now, I want us to look at the book of Esther. We're going to begin looking in Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Remember that Esther was brought in as a sort of beauty pageant. She wins the bachelor competition. He gives her a rose, so to speak. I'm told that's how that show goes. I actually have no firsthand knowledge. She wins, she becomes queen. Now about four years have passed since she won that pageant and she's now queen. So we're gonna pick up in Esther chapter two, beginning in verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, oh, that's right, it's the bachelor season two. You see, uh, all of the king's advisors said, hey, that's great and all, and she's a good queen and she's a pretty queen, but that was so much fun the first time, we should totally do that again. Not such a great idea. But when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, that's not just a geographic marker to tell you where he was in the winter capital of the Persian Empire. No, that is a legal definition that he has some sort of judicial authority and power. Mordecai's been there a very long time. We're told in chapter one when he came. So he's been there a very long time and he's risen to prominence. He's probably an elderly fellow by this point, And he has some position of judicial authority in the winter capital of the Persian empire. 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. She's still operating under a veil of secrecy. Now watch this. As Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Apparently, what the author wants us to understand is that Esther has never made known her racial or ethnic heritage. Neither has Mordecai. So this is not a recent imposition that Mordecai is giving. This is the way it's always been. He's never disclosed 
who he was or where he was from. This is quite a bit different from Daniel and his three friends who were well known to be Hebrew boys. Mordecai and Esther are staying hidden and they're not supposed to be where and when they are. Verse 21, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs. Well, this is interesting. Mordecai, because of his power, his proximity, hears of a plot to do something dastardly. These two guys who were eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, that's a strange expression, but we understand what that actually means is these two guys were granted access to be the guardians, sort of the imperial guard of the king's innermost chamber, his bedroom. So this is great treachery. They have access to go into the king and they're planning to assassinate him, apparently in his room. Mordecai hears about it because they had become angry. I always just assume that's because they were eunuchs. That's another story for another time. And they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Well, I can only imagine as to why. Verse 22, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to, hmm, Queen Esther. See, Mordecai had hidden his lineage and yet he's following the prescription and the mandate of Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 tells the people of Israel who are in Babylon, seek the welfare of the city, be about its business, seek its shalom. You are not permitted to pursue any sort of government overthrow. And so Mordecai comes across this knowledge of this assassination attempt and he reports it to his cousin Esther. Watch what happens. He told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So she tells the king, hey, these guys are trying to kill you, and it's Mordecai who has discovered the plot. Now, verse 23 is one of the most sanitized, delicate verses you're ever going to read, but it's not so delicate. Verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so. Now, let me just tell you, when this king launches an investigation, it's not polite, it's not pretty. This is the king that at once had the river flogged for overflowing and breaking one of his dams. He had the river flogged. A wealthy man once asked the king if he could not have his son serve in the military. This king, Xerxes, responded by having this rich man's son cut in two and had the entire army march over him. So when it says that an investigation was launched, it probably was not fun for these two guys. And it was found to be so. The men were both hanged on the gallows. Again, this is a delicate, sanitized way. This is not a gallows like we would think in Old West hangings. No, the Hebrew word here is etz. It's a stake. They were impaled on a stake and left there in full public view. This was the way the Persians carried out their executions, hanging them or impaling them on a stake. We know that Xerxes' father, Darius, at one time, on one day, impaled 3,000 of his enemies at one time. So this was not uncommon, but it was a brutal thing. And this is what happens to these two guys. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. It's recorded in the royal archives. Surely now, things are going to turn out right for the good guys. This is how things are supposed to go. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. What? What, what, what? It should say the king promoted Mordecai. Now, every commentator, every scholar on this passage says that this is a plot twist, an unexpected turn in the narrative. And it is 
to Mordecai, and it is to those who are reading this passage then and now. But please understand, it's not a plot twist to God. He's never experienced one of those. This is a a turn that pivots on evil that's unexpected. But we have the luxury, 2,500 years after this is written, to expect these sorts of things. Haman is promoted. And listen to what it says about Haman. The king promoted Haman the Agagite. That's right. He's an alumni of the fight in Texas A&M Aggies. No, that's actually not what that means, whether you hate that or not. That's actually not what's happening here. There's a lot of different thought and idea about what this could possibly mean. Some people take it that this designation that Haman was an Agagite means that he came from the lineage of King Agag, who were 600 years prior the people of the Amalekites who ravaged Israel and God told King Saul, a Benjamite, to annihilate and slaughter and eradicate all of the Amalekites, man, woman, and child. And King Saul fails at this and Samuel rebukes him in 1 Samuel 15 and then Samuel actually kills Agag, the Amalekite, chops off his head. So there's some thinking here that this guy was a descendant, and that there is still bad blood between the Amalekites of King Agag and the Benjamites, of which we already have been told Mordecai is a Benjamite. That's one line of thinking. Another line of thinking is that there was a province in Persia called Agag, and that this guy was just from that province. Both are possible. Most scholars seem to think because it's more likely and logical that he's just from Agag. But I take it here again, interpretively, contextually, that because this is written by somebody in Israel to Israel, that they are calling on the fact that every Israelite would have known that an Agagite is an enemy of the people of God. What's going to happen? How is God going to respond to this? So let's pick up and keep reading. Now, You should know that this man, Haman, his name is a homonym for the Hebrew word hatred. When you say Haman, you would also say Hamach. Haman, Haman. Hamach is hatred. Haman is his name. Now, Jewish people to this day, every time the name Haman or Haman is uttered, they all hiss loudly and they bang pots and pans and other noisemakers together so that you will never actually have to hear his name. His name means hatred, essentially. On the Feast of Purim, which this book is setting up to explain, every time this story is read in the synagogue, some 54 times his name is read. And every time his name is read, the people hiss and they clang loud noisemakers together. And so here's what I think should probably happen. Every time I say the name Haman, you in the comfort of your own home, you should hiss loudly. You should even take a selfie of you hissing loudly every time I say the name Haman. Hey, let's practice. Haman, that's marvelous. Next week, you can do it in person and I will have tingles with expectations of joy. So, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. This is not supposed to happen. This is very bad news. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, 
a couple thoughts on this. Some people have said, yay, Mordecai, well done, good job for not bowing down. But this is a little bit different than Daniel's friends not bowing down or Daniel not bowing down. This is simply someone in the Persian Empire who was supposed to pay respect, homage, and honor to a Gentile ruler. And there's nothing wrong with that. Jacob bows down seven times before Esau. Daniel bows down before Nebuchadnezzar and says, live forever, O king. No, more than likely, the writer wants us to understand that there is some pride here. Mordecai doesn't want to bow down because of the enmity between the Agagites and the Benjamites. Mordecai refuses to bow down. The other idea is that, no, uh, Haman's being elevated as deity, and Mordecai's not going to be a part of that. That's possible, too. I'll let you decide. Verse 3, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? See, also, these two guys impaled on stakes. Why are you disobeying the, the king's commands? It won't end well for you. And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Finally, Mordecai says, listen, I can't bow down to him. I'm a Jew. Maybe he's now finding it convenient to hide behind his religion, or maybe he's just saying, you don't understand. There's adversity between we Benjamites and those Agagites. We don't know exactly, but he uses now finally his Jewish heritage. Verse five is key. And when Haman, don't forget to hiss, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with Hamach. Haman Hamach is all the text says. Haman was filled with hatred, with fury and with rage. But he disdained, verse 6, to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. That's amazing. One guy refuses to bow down, and Haman decides, I'm going to annihilate and slaughter everybody that's Jewish in the entire kingdom. Hmm. That's some weird thematic theological connection. I can't seem to put my finger on it. Let's see. One guy is a rebel and all people must die because of it. Hmm, that seems like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Genesis chapter three. We're supposed to get that connection that the rebellion of one man sows the seeds of destruction for everybody else. Now, we're gonna pick up some speed here in verse seven. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. So some time has now passed. We're supposed to understand this. The key of this chapter are the month dates. We don't really understand these on first reading, so let me explain. This month is about mm, March-April time frame, okay? So keep that in mind. This is March-April time frame. In the 12th year of the king, they cast poor, that is, lots. It's like rolling the dice, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So again, let me explain what's going on here. It is, let's say, March, April, and the translation is a little bit delicate. The Hebrew is kind of weird here. Do they cast lots 365 times in one day, or do they cast lots every day for 365 days? We don't know. But the important part is we're supposed to understand that the unseen hand of God is present. When you roll the dice and you get a no 365 times, you're beginning to discern a pattern. Like, 
Should we kill them? No. Okay, should we kill them? No. Should we kill them? No. This is getting old. I would love a sandwich. Should we kill them? No. Should we kill them? No. And the 365th time, they finally get a yes. What this is going to translate to, we'll find out in chapter 6 and following, is that the edict is going to go out in, let's call it early April, but the decree, in other words, where this will actually be permitted, will not be able to take effect until March. So when the decree goes out that I'll read in just a moment, the Jewish people throughout the entire empire will have almost 12 months to prepare. Again, Esther's an interesting book. The name of God is never mentioned. Worship, prayer, the temple, the law, never mentioned. Is God present? Where is God? Oh, he is present. His activity does not depend on our awareness. We are to be encouraged. The original readers of this book were to be encouraged. Then verse 8, we're going to see some more treachery and deceit. Then Haman said to the king, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So he's slandering them very dangerously. He's appealing to this king's insecurity and his ego. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, just as God had prescribed about the Amalekites. Haman wants to do that now to these Jewish people. The word is probably better annihilated, not just destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. <laughs> this is unbelievable. 10,000 talents of silver is 375 tons of silver. Now we're beginning to understand why Haman got promoted. This dude's got some mad cash. It's estimated that 375 tons of silver would have been about two-thirds the worth of the Persian Empire, which must have raised the king's eyebrow. Hey, where are you going to come up with 375 tons of silver, very interesting, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite. Don't forget to hiss, very important. The son of Hamadatha. See, the writer wants us to know who this guy is. The enemy of the Jews. It looks like Haman is now in control. The bad guys are going to win. He has the signet ring of the king. A king's ex, he can do whatever he wants, and it's going to be under the king's authority. Verse 11, and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. I don't need your money. The people also do to do with them as it seems good to you. We don't know where Haman was going to get this cash, but we're about to find out. Now in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors, that's all the authorities, over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Listen to how efficient they are. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction. Listen to this to annihilate, to kill, and to destroy, or vice versa, all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This is how Haman's going to come up with all this money. He's going to bring to himself all of the goods, all of the treasure, all the belongings of all of the Jewish people of the entire Persian Empire, we know is at least a million people. 
Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, that is the winter capital. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. This is chilling. They've just ordered the extermination, a mass genocide, a holocaust of over a million people, and they sit down to have a beer. Listen to what it says next. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Yeah, all the people of the capital were saying, this is an atrocity. Even in that day, 2,500 years ago, this level of genocide, of holocaust, of annihilation was horrifying. They're thrown into confusion. If he's going to do this to the Jewish people, what might he do to our people as well? What's going to happen now that this edict has gone out, now that the twist of the plot has happened, how is this going to turn out well? We're going to have to stay tuned. In the interim, in the meantime, I want to direct your attention to some quick application points. How can we actually bring this to sit in our day and time? How do we bring this narrative to sit in our laps as we live and wrestle with the question, where is God? Well, I want to remind you, God's activity does not depend on our awareness. So this leads me to my first point of application. It goes like this. God is never not writing his story. God is never not writing his story. Please understand, Mordecai experiences a plot twist. Esther experiences a plot twist. The people of the Jewish race in the Persian Empire experience a plot twist, but God does not. He is always using these events Enemy, enemies against his people or attempted genocides, all of these things for his glory to demonstrate his grace. Sometimes God saves in the near term. Sometimes great evils are perpetrated, but God is never not writing his story. We have the advantage of having this complete narrative. And so when things come to us, we can know that, oh, this is a part of God's story. I will wait humbly and patiently and reverently and trust that he is good and he is merely writing his story. I can't wait to see how this turns out. Second point of application. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean that he isn't there. I can't stress this enough. And yes, I'm largely talking to myself here. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he isn't there. Where is God? Yes, it is his name, Yahweh. It means I am that I am. For him to not be there would be the ungodding of God, and that cannot occur. God is present. He is acting. He is moving. Even if we can't discern or detect it, we can trust that he is diligent. He is present. Even in the crisis and the long, dark night of our soul, in our discouragement, in our despair, and our depression, God is not absent. Third point of application. What men intend for evil, God superintends for good. It's the culmination of the book of Genesis, what Joseph tells his brothers. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. What Haman, the enemy of the Jews, intends for evil is going to turn out to be used for good. Interestingly, about nine years after this, the king will in fact be assassinated in his bedroom by two of his interior guards. That happened anyway. But God used that plot and this promotion of Haman to build up his people so that they would be encouraged by his glory and his goodness and his grace. God's activity does not depend on our awareness. Now, 
We'll hear more about the story in the coming weeks as we continue to study through the book of Esther. But I want to go ahead and drop a little breadcrumb here to prepare you. This slaughter, this annihilation, this genocide was supposed to have taken place all throughout the Persian Empire the day before Passover. Not a coincidence. The people of the Jewish race in the Persian Empire were to have been reminded that there's again going to come an extermination, a judgment, and there is no hope whatsoever for survival unless God acts and intervenes, unless God provides a substitute. We'll hear more about in the coming days and in the coming weeks. And so I encourage you to continue to read through the book of Esther, to pray through the book of Esther, and to discuss it with your family.